Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in patients with end-stage renal disease on dialysis. The use of mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, or MRAs like spironolactone, have been shown to reduce cardiovascular mortality in non-ESRD patients with heart failure. Naturally, there are concerns that MRA use in the ESRD population increases the risk of hyperkalemia and hypotension, but is that concern justified? Dr. Hannah Brockmeyer, a clinical pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, reviews the safety and efficacy of MRAs in patients with ESRD. Imagine you're admitting a patient onto your, your unit. As you start to examine their past medical history, you notice it's significant for end-stage renal disease and the patients on hemodialysis, along with heart failure. As the first set of labs come back, you appreciate that their potassium is elevated at 5.2. Being the dutiful practitioner you are, you evaluate their home medication list and notice that they're on spironolactone at home. Should we hold the spironolactone while the patient's admitted? Should we continue it during their admission? Today, we'll delve into the literature concerning this very topic. We'll discover how the role of mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, which I'll now be referring to as MRAs, may impact patients with end-stage renal disease. We'll examine several studies that further look into the risks and benefits of use of MRAs in patients with end-stage renal disease. Finally, we'll come up with a potential MRA treatment regimen to use in patients with dialysis-dependent end-stage renal disease. As we take a closer look at the impact of end-stage renal disease, it's worth noting that approximately three-quarters of a million Americans currently receive dialysis. Every year, there are about a little over 100,000 new cases of end-stage renal disease that are diagnosed. The annual mortality rate of patients on hemodialysis is approximately 20%, with cardiovascular disease contributing about 40% of these deaths. Putting a different perspective on these percentages, every day approximately 240 hemodialysis patients die, with cardiovascular disease causing almost 100 deaths per day in hemodialysis patients. Now let's set the stage for what end-stage renal disease is. This is where kidney failure occurs and now requires some form of renal replacement. This can be done either through dialysis or through kidney transplantation. Specifically, this is when the estimated glomerular filtration rate falls below 15 and is often accompanied by signs and symptoms of uremia, such as nausea, vomiting, and malnutrition. Mechanisms that can cause kidney damage include hypertrophy of the nephrons, glomerular sclerosis, interstitial fibrosis, and overstimulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. As we take a closer look at the RAS system, we're reminded that the liver synthesizes angiotensinogen, which is then converted by renin to angiotensin-1, which is then converted by the angiotensin-converting enzyme to angiotensin-2. As this binds to the angiotensin-2 receptor, it has various effects on the kidney, heart, brain, and vasculature including vasoconstriction and stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. It also increases the synthesis of aldosterone, which has similar effects on these organ systems as well, when it binds to the mineralocorticoid receptor. 
As we went through that pathway, several of these enzymes and receptors are fairly, fairly familiar to us, as these are the targets of several of our cardiovascular medications, including direct renin inhibitors that inhibit renin, ACE inhibitors working on ACE, and angiotensin receptor blockers that block the angiotensin II receptor. All of these medications have the potential to then decrease aldosterone synthesis. So since we have ACE, ARBs, and direct renin inhibitors, what would be the benefit of adding an MRA to antagonize aldosterone at the receptor? This is because over time, other stimulating factors, despite use of these medications, may increase aldosterone synthesis, which is known as aldosterone breakthrough. Therefore, using MRAs to antagonize aldosterone at the receptor may combat its effects. As we take a closer look at all how aldosterone works in our body, I'll draw your attention to the middle rectangle, which represents a collecting tubule cell in our kidney. The left is the lumen, represented by yellow for urine, and on our right, we have the red representing our blood. As sodium moves through an epithelial sodium channel across the collecting tubule cell of the kidney, and then uses active transport powered by adenosine triphosphate to move into the kidney in exchange for potassium. This then in turn is excreted into the urine. Now, as aldosterone binds to the mineralocorticoid receptor, it causes upregulation of both of these channels. As these channels are upregulated, this allows for more sodium to be reabsorbed into the blood and more potassium is excreted. And as we know, water tends to follow sodium, and this is where we start to see the increase in blood pressure with aldosterone use. Conversely, as MRAs competitively compete with aldosterone to bind to the mineral corticoid receptor, we don't see this upper regulation of channels. Therefore, we see less sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. And over time, we start to see more potassium in the blood, which can lead to our hyperkalemia, more sodium excretion, and as water follows our sodium, we see that diuretic effect. Not only does aldosterone work in the kidney, but it has, other it has an impact on other organ systems. As we look at how aldosterone can impact the heart, excessive amounts of aldosterone can lead to high blood pressure, ventricular, left ventricular hypertrophy, fibrosis of the myocardial sites, and potentially arrhythmias, none of which are good things in patients. As one of the effects of excessive aldosterone, hypertension is of keen interest in these patients since approximately 90% of ESRD patients have hypertension. As we look to treating these patients, ideally we start with lifestyle modifications. Specifically in hemodialysis patients, control of volume status is utmost important to help control their blood pressure. However, for some patients this may not be enough and we start to look to some of our medications, including calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, ACEs, or ARBs. Long-standing untreated hypertension may potentially lead to heart failure. Specifically, there's approximately 30% of hemodialysis patients have heart failure. As we look at treatment for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF, what's recommended in patients with end-stage renal disease is an evidence-based beta blocker, such as carvedilol, bisoprolol, or metoprolol succinate. ACE inhibitors or ARB could be considered as well. However, there are concerns for hyperkalemia and hypotension in these patients that may limit some of our treatment options. One treatment option that we know could benefit these patients is the use of a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. As we've seen in the RAILS and Emphasis Heart Failure trial, 
using spironolactone or aplerinone in patients with HEF-REF does decrease mortality. The ASCOT and PATHWAY2 trial gave insight into spironolactone's effect on resistant hypertension as both saw decreases in mean systolic blood pressure. However, it's worth noting these, patient, these trials excluded patients with end-stage renal disease in one way or another. Although these trials excluded patients with end-stage renal disease, one trial that highlighted why MRAs may be of keen interest in this patient population was conducted was the German dialysis, Diabetes and Dialysis Study. This trial of a little over 1,000 patients followed them for four years. It was noted that those who had an excessive amount of aldosterone at baseline were at an increased risk of sudden cardiac death. So now that we've described the effects of aldosterone on the body and that patients with an excessive amount of end-stage renal disease may be negatively impacted, which of the following would be a potential benefit of antagonizing the effects of aldosterone in a patient with end-stage renal disease through use of an MRA? MRAs, do MRAs increase left ventricular hypertrophy? Does aldosterone breakthrough lead to cardiac fibrosis? Do aldosterone, does aldosterone reduce sympathetic activation and cardiac output? Or do MRAs increase blood pressure, which could improve post-dialysis hypotension? So I will invite you to answer the question below. You can go to polleverywhere.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333 to join and then respond with your recording answer. So as our answers start to come in, I would agree with the vast majority that aldosterone breakthrough could lead to cardiac fibrosis. MRAs tend, could, aldosterone tends to increase left ventricular hypertrophy, so MRAs have the potential to decrease this effect. Aldosterone typically increases the sympathetic activation and cardiac output, and MRAs tend to decrease our blood pressure, which may lead to post-dialysis hypotension. Now that we've examined several benefits of using an MRAs in these patients, let's dive, let's dive into more detail about these specific agents. Spironolactone and aplerinone are both mostly metabolized by the liver and excreted, eliminated by the kidney. As far as selectivity for the mineral corticoid receptor, aplerinone is more highly selective than spironolactone, which may explain some of our increased antiandrogenic side effects such as gynecomastia and our metabolic side effects. Even though aplerinone is more highly selective, spironolactone has a higher binding affinity to the receptor, which may make it more efficacious for cardiovascular benefits such as resistant hypertension, but this could lead to an increased risk in hyperkalemia compared to aplerinone. The American College of Cardiology Foundation and American Heart Association specifically addressed this risk in the 2013 guidelines for managing heart failure. The guidelines state that inappropriate use of aldosterone receptor antagonists is potentially harmful as patients experiencing life-threatening hyperkalemia or renal insufficiency. Keeping the risks and benefits of MRAs in mind, are you currently comfortable using an MRA in patients with end-stage renal disease? As answers start to come in, it seems that the majority of our audience says no, we're not currently comfortable using an MRA in patients with end-stage renal disease, although the vote is fairly split. A similar poll was conducted in the end of August on Twitter directed at medical professionals with a nephrology interest. The poll asked if, if people were using aldosterone receptor antagonists in end-stage renal disease. Of the 305 votes, like ours, it was fairly split, although the majority of people did say that, yes, they were using these agents. The second question of this poll asked under what circumstances 
do practitioners use these agents? In order to answer some of the questions about circumstances of use, we will now delve into some of the primary literature for some more clarity concerning if and when we should use these agents. Miranda was a multicenter double-blind randomized trial that included adult patients on hemodialysis. These patients were randomized to receive spironolactone at a dose of 50 milligrams or placebo for nine months. Now, as this trial kept in mind the risk of hyperkalemia in these patients, it excluded those with a baseline enrollment potassium of higher than six, and those who had a potassium higher than 6.5 three months at least three times within three months prior to enrollment were excluded as well. In order to closely monitor patients' potassium, potassium was measured before every hemodialysis session. If it was found to be higher than six, the medication was held until a repeat level was less than 5.5. Patients were then retitrated up by using 25 milligrams daily for two weeks. If at any point the potassium was higher than 6.5, the medication was held and only restarted per the patient and provider discussion of risks and benefits. As we take a closer look at our population in this study, it's worth noting that about 80% of patients were male, which was similar between the spironolactone 50 milligrams group in the dark blue and the placebo in the light. About 55% of patients were on an ACE or ARB at baseline, and this was continued during the study. About 50% of the patients had residual renal function, which the authors defined as a urine output of more than 500 mils in 24 hours. However, 6% of patients or less had left ventricular had a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 40%. The study found that the mean difference in change at nine months between left ventricular mass index and left ventricular ejection fraction was not significant between the two groups. These are surrogate markers for cardiovascular mortality. Although this patient, although this trial did not find a significant difference in these outcomes, this was mostly an exploratory outcome and the focus was on safety. After nine months of treatment, the mean serum potassium in these patients was a little bit higher in the spironolactone group, although this did not reach statistical significance. The study defined moderate hyperkalemia as a potassium between 6 and 6.4. Those patients experiencing a moderate hyperkalemic event was significantly higher in the spironolactone group. However, the number of patients experiencing an event was similar between the two groups. This means that several patients in the group may have been more prone to hyperkalemia and moderate hyperkalemia and experienced multiple events. As far as severe hyperkalemia was concerned, which they defined as a potassium higher than 6.5, events and patients experiencing events were similar between the two groups. Discontinuation rate, specifically due to hyperkalemia, only occurred in one patient on spironolactone at 50 milligrams, and discontinuation due to other adverse effects was actually higher in the placebo group. As we recall, if patients had a potassium higher than six, there was the potential option to decrease their dose to 25 milligrams and then titrate back up. The authors reported about how many patients went through this process by giving the mean daily dose in a percentage of tablets of all patients. This 84% would be equivalent to 42 milligrams and was statistically, statistically significantly less than in the placebo group where 90% of patients were not on the full target treatment. Overall, this study was randomized, placebo-controlled, and double-blind, and patients who are on an ACE ARB on baseline were continued. This is important to note, is if we were inclined to 
give a patient an MRA who has a cardiovascular, as a baseline cardiovascular disease, that we would want them to be on maximal therapy to benefit them, which would include an ACER ARB. Also, we can get a clearer picture of how adding an MRA to an ACER ARB impacts our potassium in these patients. There was a protocol in place to adjust the medication during to, due to hyperkalemia, which could also be applied if using these using medications in these patients. The surrogate, the cardiovascular outcomes were surrogate mar markers. There was a low exclusion, a low inclusion of patients with HEF-REF with only about 5%, which this is a patient population we'd be especially keen on seeing how this impacts them. Another thing is that they did monitor the potassium before every dialysis session, which may not be practical in the outpatient setting with MRA use. Overall, we saw that spironolactone at 50 milligrams does increase the events of, hyper, of moderate hyperkalemia, which they define as potassium between 6 and 6.4. No difference was found in our surrogate cardiovascular outcomes. Although we saw that spironolactone at 50 milligrams has the potential to increase hyperkalemia, Another study evaluated the impact of different doses of spironolactone. This multicenter double-blind randomized trial included patient, adult patients on hemodialysis. These patients were randomized into four different arms. So one arm was the placebo group, one 12.5 milligrams, one a target dose of 25, and another a target of 50. In order to achieve these higher target doses, patients were slowly titrated up with their doses being doubled every two weeks as tolerated. So we can see that in the 50 milligram group, they start on 12.5, move to 25, and then 50 milligrams. Of note, one patient in the 25 milligram group was not able to tolerate that dose, stayed on 12.5, and two in the 50 milligram group stayed on the 25. How this trial handled patients who may have been at an increased risk of hyperkalemia was by excluding patients who had a potassium higher than six within two weeks prior to enrollment or 6.5 within three months. If anybody had unscheduled dialysis specifically due to hyperkalemia recently, they were excluded as well. In order to monitor for hyperkalemia, potassium was monitored monthly and more frequently if the dose required adjustment. If at any point the potassium was higher than six to 6.5, a level was repeated. If then it was less than six, they continued on their dose. Doses were only reduced if that repeat level was higher than 6.5 or was higher than six, than six despite a dialysis concentra potassium concentration of less than 2.0. If at any point in time the potassium was higher than seven, the medication was continued, or if they had failed two prior dose reductions. Overall, our baseline characteristics in this population Every, the majority of patients had an average age of about 55 years old, with the majority of patients again being male. As far as baseline cardiovascular disease in these patients, the mean systolic blood pressure pre-dialysis was about 140 between the two groups. Although the authors did not provide statistical breakdown, there was a noticeably lower mean systolic blood pressure in the 12.5 group. Similarly, patients with Congestive heart failure had, were the lowest in the spironolactone 12.5 group, although we can see this is, we have more patients included in this trial than our Miranda trial, with about 15% having CHF at baseline, although the authors did not give a breakdown for ejection fraction. Patients who continu continued prior ACER-ARB therapy was about 30% in each group, and the mean potassium at baseline was 4.8 in all groups. The SPIN-D had a, had an emphasis on safety outcomes in their trial. 
On the y-axis, we rep is represented by the percentage of patients in each group. And on our x-axis, we have various safety outcomes that they measured. Our dark blue represents the placebo group, and as we move to the right in colors, we increase our dose of spironolactone. As we can see, patients who experienced a potassium of higher than 6.5 was highest in the 50 milligram group. Patients who required a hospital visit due to hypotension was also higher in the spironolactone 50 milligram group. Those who had to permanently discontinue the drug were similar between the placebo and the 50 milligram group of spironolactone. However, those who had to discontinue the drug specifically for a potassium higher than seven, which is now represented by our black bars, was highest in the placebo group. Of note, patients on the nobody, no patients on the 25 milligram group had to discontinue the medication due to potassium higher than seven. No, no discontinuation was due to breast tenderness or enlargement. Although this trial focused on safety, their exploratory out efficacy outcomes, they did not find a significant difference between early diastolic mitral velocity and left ventricular ejection fraction. Overall, this study monitored potassium monthly and after dose adjustments, which may be more applicable to real life monitoring of potassium. It did evaluate different doses of spironolactone, which can help us get a better, better picture of what dose may be safe to use. They also titrated up to their target doses. Again, their efficacy outcomes were mostly exploratory, and although we saw more patients with HEFREF, we still only saw about 10 to 15% of patients that were included. And although we talked about how there was a process to decrease our dose, overall the number of patients that required a dose reduction was not clear. So what we can gather from this study is overall doses, 25 milligrams or less, are well tolerated, and again, we did not see a difference in our exploratory efficacy outcomes. Now that we've established that spironolactone at certain doses may be safe in hemodialysis patients, the phase trial set out to evaluate how a plerinone can impact patients on hemodialysis. This multicenter double-blind randomized trial included adults receiving hemodialysis at least three times a week. They were randomized to receive a plerinone at a target dose of 25 milligrams twice a day or placebo. The patients were treated for three months. Patients with a potassium higher than six at baseline within four months prior to enrollment were excluded. Similar to our SPINDI study, patients were titrated up to the target dose, the pink. So as we kind of evaluate the different steps of dose titration, we see that patients had started at hold, potentially moved to three tablets weekly, which the tablet represents 25 milligrams of a plerinone or matching placebo then could move up to one tablet daily, and then finally the target dose of a plerinone, two tablets daily. Patients were titrated up or titrated down according to their potassium level or if they had symptomatic hypotension. Specifically, if the potassium is between 6.1 and 6.5, they were decreased by one step. If on repeat the potassium was less than six, then they were increased up one step. If at any point the potassium was higher than 6.5, the dose was held and then restarted per provider discretion. This trial, they monitored the potassium every week for three weeks and then monthly. As we look at the baseline characteristics of our trial population, the average age is about 60 years old, with the majority of patients being male in both groups. Our baseline cardiovascular risk factors, the average systolic blood pressure was about 135 between the two in both groups, and Patients who were included with congestive heart failure was about 10%. Those that continued prior baseline prior ACE and ARB was 40% in each group, 
and the average potassium before starting an MRA was again 4.8. This study also primarily focused on safety, with the primary endpoint being discontinuation due to potassium or hypotension. Three patients in this aplerinone group experienced the primary safety outcome and two in the aplerinone group, which was not found to be significant. Those that experienced hyperkalemia, specifically a potassium higher than 6.5, was higher in the aplerinone group, although this did not achieve statistical significance. Those with potassium higher than 7 was also highest, higher in the aplerinone group than placebo. Of note, those that experienced these events at 90% of them experienced them within the first month of treatment enrollment. The only patient who experienced moderate or severe, severe hyperkalemia was at the very end of the study after he missed a dialysis session. Those that experienced significant hypotension were similar between the two groups. Now, as we take a look at this graph, we'll recall a similar, the similar graphic that we used to describe our steps of dose titration with the pink representing holding a dose, purple three tablets a week, blue one tablet, and green two tablets. Our more solid colored column on the left represents a plerinone, the pattern placebo, and as we move along the x-axis, we move through time of this trial. So during week one, patients were typically started on one tablet a day or 25 milligrams of a plerinone or placebo. As we move to week two, we can see that about 70% of patients were able to achieve the target dose in both groups. Throughout the study, about 70% of patients remained on the target dose and was similar between the aplerinone and placebo. However, it's worth noting, although they reported the percent of patients on a certain dose at a certain time, they didn't, the authors did not report if, which patients had to titrate up or which patients had to titrate down, just the breakdown of the group as a whole. So like our other trials, this, this one did continue prior ACERB therapy, and they did report a baseline potassium, which it could be important as we consider using starting MRAs in these patients. It's important to see what the baseline potassium in these trials were as we consider what's which, how high is too high to initiate use. There was also a protocol in place to adjust the medications due to adverse effects. This trial only followed patients for 36 weeks, it did not include a lot of patients with HEF-REF at about 10%, and it was unclear which doses were associated with the adverse effects as patients frequently could have moved up or down in dose titration. So what we can see from this trial is a plerinone at 25 milligrams twice a day or less is fairly well tolerated compared to placebo in patients on hemodialysis. Although the trials so far, we've established we focused a lot on safety and our efficacy outcomes were mostly exploratory. The DOHA study put a primary focus on cardiovascular outcomes in their multi-center open-label randomized trial across Japan. Like our others, they included adult patients receiving hemodialysis three times a week. These patients were randomized to receive spironolactone at 25 milligrams daily or remained in the control group. They were followed for 36 months. Patients were excluded who had a baseline potassium of 6.5 within the two months prior to enrollment. Now this trial, they monitored the potassium every two weeks for the 36 months. If at any point it was found to be higher than 6.8, they then held the medication. Or if patients were, receiving, were experiencing breast pain or gynecomastia, or the treating provider could hold the medication at their own discretion. 
Baseline characteristics in this trial was our average age was a little bit higher than what we've seen so far, being about 67. The majority of patients were male, a little bit higher in the spironolactone group compared to the control. Our systolic blood pressure was also a little higher than what we've seen at about an average of 152, or 150 between the two groups. And again, we saw about 40% of patients continue prior ACE or ARB therapy. So I'll draw your attention to our first outcome, which was first occurrence of cardiovascular or cerebrovascular event that caused death or hospitalization. The trial defined this outcome as anywhere from a heart failure hospitalization, a stroke or TIA, myocardial infarction, made up this composite endpoint. Nine patients in the spironolactone group experienced this endpoint, and about 23 patients in the control experienced this endpoint, which was found to be statistically significantly less in the spironolactone group. The calculated number needed to treat of 15 with using spironolactone. Our secondary outcome of all-cause mortality, 10 patients in the spironolactone group died with 30 in the control group. This is about a 60% decrease between the two groups, which achieved statistical significance and a number needed to treat calculated of eight. Although we see strong efficacy outcomes with spironolactone use, we'll call our attention to our safety outcome. Overall, 23 patients, or about 15%, had to discontinue spironolactone due to adverse effects. The specific breakdown of the, the adverse effects in these 23 patients is represented by this graph with breast pain and gynecomastia making up about a two-thirds majority. Only three patients in the spironolactone group had to discontinue the drug due to hyperkalemia with respective potassium values of 6.6, 6.7, and 7.3. Overall, like our others, ACEs and ARBs were continued during this trial and had, this trial had a long duration of follow-up of about 36 months. It also examined a clinically impactful cardiovascular income by looking at cerebrovascular and cardiovascular mortality and events. This trial was open label and did not contain a placebo and was only focused on the Japanese population, which may be different to extrapolate to the United States as we may have different occurrence of cardiovascular events. It was also unknown if patients with HEFREF were included in this trial. And although we saw that they held the medication, if the potassium was higher than 6.8, they did not report if there was a process for resuming the medication. And since we also saw that only three patients overall discontinued the medication, there may have been some sort of process in place for resuming. So from this trial, we similarly saw that spironolactone 25 milligrams was well tolerated, and it was associated with a decrease to the first cerebrovascular or cardiovascular event and all-cause mortality. So keeping what we've mentioned so far in mind, which of the following was a risk of MRA use in patients with end-stage renal disease? Did we see a decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction? Did we see arrhythmias with a potassium higher than 7.5? Did we see significantly increased risk of hyperkalemic events defined as potassium higher than 6.5? Or do we see more hypotension with MRA use? So as the results start to come in, I would have to agree with the majority that we did see more occurrence of hyperkalemia in the spironolactone group. We did not see a significant difference in left ventricular ejection fraction between the two groups. Although we had several potassiums reported higher than seven, there was no, the authors did not give guidance to whether arrhythmias occurred. Also from the SPINDI trial, we did not see significant hypotension with use of an MRA.
So as we summarize the evidence, it's noted that spironolactone at a dose of 25 milligrams or less may be safe in patients with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis, or a plerinone at a similar dose may also be safe. Overall, although the DOHAS study did provide significant differences in car a cardiovascular endpoint, I believe that cardiovascular benefits require further studies. We did see that moderate or severe hyperkalemia may be more likely to occur during the first month of use for MRA. However, it's worth noting that during all of these trials, potassium was monitored differently. And so we may see that at some point, potassium, potassium may be higher than seven, and it's always worth keeping our eyes on. Ideal patients for MRI use would be those that are compliant to hemodialysis and their medications. As we recall from the FACE study, a patient who missed a dialysis session did experience significant hyperkalemia. And those with a minimal history of hyperkalemia would be ideal to use these as well, as in all of our trials, in some way or another, those with the elevated baseline potassium were excluded. Although our trials offered some clarity of the use of MRIs, there's still several remaining questions especially concerning the use of these MRAs in patients with HEF-REF. In our studies, the highest that we saw at HEF-REF inclusion was about 10%. As we saw in the DOHAS study, there was a significant cardiovascular mortality benefit. However, does this reduction apply to a larger international ESRD population? And as all the trials had different protocols for monitoring potassium, how frequently should we monitor the potassium in patients in the outpatient setting with MRA use. Two current ongoing trials that we hope will answer at least some of these questions are the ALCHEMIST and ACHIEVE trial. Both are phase three randomized controlled trials with the ALCHEMIST occurring in Europe and ACHIEVE multi is multi-continental with North America, Europe, and Asia sites. The studies both hope to conclude in 2023 with ALCHEMIST following patients for an average of two years and ACHIEVE for five. Alchemist is focusing on patients with hemodialysis, while ACHIEVE is including patients with both hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. Both are using spironolactone 25 milligrams a day versus placebo. The primary outcome for Alchemist is similar to what we saw with our DOHAS study, with time to first onset of non-fatal MI, acute coronary syndrome, stroke, heart failure, hospitalization, or death due to cardiovascular causes. ACHIEVE is looking at cardiovascular death or hospitalization from a heart failure exacerbation. Currently, Alchemist is recruiting a little over 800 patients and ACHIEVE a little under 3,000. As we wait for the results of these two trials, I'll invite you to apply what we discussed today to a patient case. A 55-year-old female on hemodialysis is compliant with her meds and her appointments. A recent echocardiogram showed or ejection fraction of approximately 30%. Together, her nephrologist and cardiologist have discussed maybe adding an MRA to her treatment regimen. Her baseline potassium is 4.8 on average. Her average systolic blood pressure after dialysis is 144 over 90. She's currently on carvedilol and lisinopril. As a cardiologist and nephrologist come to you to discuss a dose, if you were to initiate this patient on MRA, what would your gold dose be? So as the results start to come in, I would agree with the majority of that spironolactone 25 milligrams daily would be my gold dose, as we saw that this had a significant cardiovascular impact. 
However, I think starting spironolactone at 12.5 milligrams daily and then potentially titrating up could be considered as well. We did see an increased risk of hyperkalemia with doses at, 55, at 50 milligrams daily. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.